Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal. And I'm joined today by novelist David Ellis to talk about his new thriller, Look Closer. Hi, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for being here today. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, usually what I like to do in the beginning is ask guests a little bit about their breaking in story. So I guess I'll start right there. Like, how, how did you get into all this novel writing business? Because I know you're a full-time judge. Is that right? I am a full-time judge, and I've been a lawyer since 1993. And I started writing my first novel in 1997. It took me about three years to get it done and published. And people always ask me, you know, what made you become a writer? And and my answer is I was a writer before I was a lawyer. I was a writer my whole life. When I was a little kid, I used to write short stories. When I was uh, in, I think, fourth grade, I entered a young author's contest through my school, and I thought that I won. I was told that I won. Looking back in hindsight, I'm pretty sure that everybody who entered was a winner. But at the time, I thought I was really special. And uh, I'd write, you know, plays, all sorts of things, for either for extra credit or just for fun. And then, Matt, the thing is, is as you get older, as you get to middle school and then high school, uh, you start getting busier and you start focusing on certain things. I focused on getting good grades and being a good uh, jock because I was an athlete and chasing girls. And those were my priorities. And um, the, the curriculum was such that there was really nobody asking me to write creatively. There were no courses. My English classes had very little creative writing elements to them. And so I just stopped writing because I wasn't being told that I had to, and it wasn't making my priority list. And and then I went to college and majored in finance, and then I went to law school, where you don't have time to do much of anything but study and, and try to get a few hours of sleep. So I... You know, it was after a couple years of being a lawyer, I was on vacation and I was watching the sunset like we all do. We have that drink in our hand and we're thinking about our lives. And I started asking myself, why did you stop writing? And I didn't have a good answer. And I realized it was something I wanted to try. And so I made a deal with myself right then. This would have been probably 1996 or seven. I loved being a lawyer. I didn't want to stop, but I made a deal with myself that I would write a book. I wouldn't just start it. I wouldn't think about it. I wouldn't just throw a few chapters together. I was going to finish it and see if I could get it published. And so that was, for me, working at a downtown Chicago law firm, that meant one hour a night for probably two and a half years trying to put my first draft of my first novel together. Did you write in the office or did you have like a writing space? Um or did you just kind of do it at the office? How did you, or wherever you could, could write? What was your kind of process? Yeah, I know. I had a little Apple computer, one of those tiny little Apple computers, no laptop back then, um, at home. And so I would come home from work, and I'd usually work pretty late. And I would just carve out at least one hour a night, uh, which luckily for me, I was enjoying doing. I felt like I was kind of reopening a part of me that had been closed. And so it was fun. It was exciting, you know, uh, teaching myself how to write. I taught myself how to write uh, in those two and a half years. I I'd never really taken a writing course, but I think I, I think I brought one skill, Matt. I think I had one skill that I brought to the equation, and that was the ability to recognize bad writing of my own, because it's hard to be objective about yourself. A lot of people can't do it. And I could do that. I could look at this and say, this isn't ready for prime time yet. It's not good enough. It's going to need to be rewritten. And my, you know, before I submitted my first draft, I probably went through six or seven iterations of that novel. 
And did you kind of write when everyone else was in bed? Uh, what was kind of your your process? Did you have a set time, or did you did you kind of um, just kind of sit down when when you could? I, I basically took whatever opportunity that I had, uh, being a, a busy lawyer, and so uh, it was always at night. And sometimes it would be more than an hour if I could spare it, if I could stay awake. And um, at that point, it was just take whatever you can get. And I didn't really have a routine set up. You know, nowadays, I get up very early in the morning and do it. I seem to have this habit of writing when everyone else is asleep. And, you know, I have a wife and three children, and I get up about 3.30 every morning, and I write until about 7. You know, I got up this morning at 3.30, and I wrote until about 7. And then it's time for my wife and kids to get up and school. And my wife is a practicing attorney, very busy attorney. And so um, that's my time. And that's my little vacation time every day. It feels like vacation time to me. And what was the name of that first novel that you published? The first book was Line of Vision. And, you know, back then it was in the late 90s. There really weren't even that many websites yet. The way you reached out to uh, to agents, to literary agents, was very interesting back then. Uh, you went to the library, or you went, I'm sorry, you went to a bookstore, you know, like a Barnes and Noble or something, and you found this book, this big book that was called The Writer's Guide to the Literary Marketplace. And it was like what, what older people like us might remember as the yellow pages, just like a directory. The, every agent would be in there and they would say, here's what I represent and here's how you reach me. And so I found everybody who wrote, who, who would uh, represent thrillers or mysteries. And um, most of them just wanted a cover letter, Matt. They wanted a cover letter or maybe, maybe the first chapter because it was snail mail. This was not email. Nowadays, I think you could send your whole book to an agent and they might read, they'll read as much as they want. But back then it was that little. So I got rejected by 75 agents based on my cover letter alone. And you could have written the best book since War and Peace, but if your cover letter wasn't intriguing enough, they would say no. I rewrote the letter in a much more intriguing fashion and I sent it to many of the same agents, really, uh, because they get 200 of these a week. So they didn't remember me. So you figured that they you figured they they wouldn't remember. No, no, of course not. And half the time, probably one of their assistants read it. They were looking for the one out of a hundred that was actually going to be worth pursuing. And the funny thing is that my first book, Line of Vision, ended up winning the Edgar Allan Poe Award for best first novel by an American author. But that book was rejected by seventy five agents before someone said yes. And did you have any like? dark moments for all that period? Or, or was it was it just like, I've written this novel, I'm just going to do my very best to get it out there? What, what, were, your, what were your kind of emotions during that, that time, kind of going through that process? No, you're right. I mean, most of it was dark. I mean, when I was writing it, I was hopeful, but I had no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to write a book that I would want to read, which is kind of how I guide myself these days. And I you know, I, I I kept checking the mailbox every day, and that can be a very frustrating experience. It could take weeks to hear from people, and I had my list of agents I had sent it to, and I slowly was crossing every one of them off because they were all saying no. So that's a lot of darkness. You know, I hadn't given up my day job, and I hadn't really even told that many people I was doing this because I knew that there was a chance it would not succeed, and I didn't really want to advertise my failure if it was a failure. And really, I should not use the word failure because I think it's brave to even try to do it. But uh, so let's scratch the word failure. But it, it was it was a, a pocket of my life, and uh, it wasn't going great because there was probably a, a year, eighteen month period where nobody said they even wanted to read the book. 
uh, who could represent it at least. And that was the only way to break in back then before ebooks. You couldn't, you had to have a literary agent. So I think the best word I could use is frustrating. You know, I just thought, you know, if people will read the whole book, they'll realize there's something here. Even if it needs some work, it, it, there's the guts of it were, were, I thought were very powerful. So I eventually got someone to review it. Uh, and uh, an agent from New York uh, said, uh, I want to represent you. And I think that we should start with the biggest fiction house in the world, which at that time was called Penguin, Penguin Putnam. Now it's Penguin Random House. And uh, so I always, and, and they accepted it. As soon as they got it, they said, yes, we'll take it. And so I always tell people it took me 18 months to find a literary agent, and it took me about 18 days to find a publisher. So turning to your new book, um, A Look Closer, it's a really fast-paced thriller. And obviously, I don't want to give too much away because you're juggling a lot of balls in this story. But what's kind of like the elevator pitch for this? And can you tell us also about the um, the, the main characters, Vicky and Simon? Sure. And you're right. You know, I've read a lot of reviews on Goodreads and Amazon and, and Instagram and, and, and that all those media outlets. And they've been very positive. But a lot of people will say one of two things. One will be, what the heck just happened? What did I just read? And others will say, I'd like to describe the story to you, but you're much better off going in blind because any summary I give you is not going to be entirely accurate. I mean, if there's one thing that's true about Look Closer, it is absolutely nothing as, as it seems. Uh, you know, the book really uh, is about two characters, primarily named Simon and Vicky, who are married. Simon is a law professor who uh, inherited a great deal of money from his father, but with the proviso that he could not share that money with his wife until he'd been married for 10 years. That's because his father had had a very bad experience with a woman who took his money. Um, and Vicky is his wife, and their marriage is coming up on those 10 years, and Vicky um, is somebody who... Oh, ran away from home, had a very difficult life. She did what a lot of people who run away from home did to earn a living. She sold her body and uh, had a drug addiction, but she's overcome all that. And now she works to help, um, you know, battered women in, in a shelter. So, you know, that's kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the how the story begins. In, in fact, uh, the, the motivations of each of these characters um, change very much over the, the course of the book as you learn more about them. Uh, there are affairs. Both of them have affairs. That's also something that's not really giving too much away here. Uh, rather than a love triangle, it's more like a love rectangle with four. And each of the four people brings some very interesting background and motivations to the story that shift the whole time. Um, I, I, I feel like it's a book that every every 10 chapters you're going to say, holy cow, what just happened? And... Um would you describe, because obviously with your background in law, would you describe it as a legal thriller or do you look at it as like falling into a different genre? You know, I, I it's not what you would probably call a legal thriller. And it's interesting you ask that, Matt, because when I first broke in, my first book, Line of Vision, which did so well, um, was also not really a legal thriller, although there was a murder trial and courtroom drama. And my publisher said, okay, you're the legal thriller guy now. And I was writing legal thrillers. My first nine books were what you would call legal thrillers that centered around courtroom dramatic moments at the end. This book is obviously about crime and it's obviously about the law, but it's not a legal thriller in any sense that people would think. I think of it as a psychological thriller. I think my publisher would like me to call it a domestic suspense 
novel because that's kind of the hot thing. I didn't do it because it was the hot thing. I did it because it's what I always wanted to do. And I felt like what made Line of Vision so special, my first book, was I got to think about it for years. I got to really live inside the head of the main character. And the psychological aspect was fascinating to me. And I wanted to bring that back with Look Closer, and I think I did. This book, the whole process of writing this book reminds me so much of my first novel. It's, I feel like I'm kind of starting over. And as I just kind of mentioned before, you do juggle a lot of balls in the story, a lot of plates. Um, yeah. What was the challenge for you as a writer in doing that? And and did all those kind of plots and subplots emerge quickly or did it just kind of emerge through the course of the writing? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. I can tell you that I began with the idea that I was going to do exactly what you're describing, that I wanted it to constantly twist because I realized that that's what I like to read. And that's like what I like to watch if I watch like a, a streaming series on, you know, Amazon Prime or something like that. Uh, I love things that constantly shift. You, you, you think you're settled in with an idea and then it comp- the ground shifts beneath you. So that was my initial plan. I had some ideas for the plot twists, and some of them came to me organically as I was writing. So, you know, ideally, if, if you can do it, uh, yeah, it'd be great if you could outline all of that ahead of time and then just go and write it. Uh, my brain doesn't tend to work that way. I feel as I get to know the characters as I'm writing them. And you really do get to know your characters as you're writing them. You learn things about your own characters, which is funny, right? Because you create them, but you're learning about them as you go. Um, different ideas prop up. And, and some of my mo- favorite moments writing this book was when I surprised myself. I came up with an idea while I was writing and said, oh, wait, wouldn't this be cool? And of course, Matt, that means you have to go back and change everything that came before it to make it fit. The one advantage I have in this game, and I do think of it as a game, I think that if you're reading a book like this, you, the reader, are in a contest with me. I'm trying to fool you. I'm trying to interest you, but I'm also, let's face it, trying to fool you. And my one advantage in this game is I can write this in whatever order I want, and I can put the information out there however I want. And so I get to manipulate as much as I wish, and then you have to read it as it's presented to you. But um, that's great fun for me because that's what I want as a reader. And uh, I always tell people it's the most fun I've ever had writing a book. And do you test those ideas with anyone, you know, when you're kind of undertaking something this complicated in terms of plot? Is there a sounding board for you so you can kind of test the idea before you start drafting? Um, How does that work for you? You know, everybody's different, but I really don't do that. I'll tell you one thing I did with this book that was different because I wrote this book during the pandemic. And um, so I was home all the time and my wife was home all the time. Uh, We were both practicing law from our house with our children who were not at school. And so we were all locked into a house together. And um, I did show some of the initial book to my wife so she could give me feedback on the characters and what she thought of the characters. Um, But in terms of the plot twists, you know, sometimes I'll kick something around my wife and she'll come up with something brilliant. She'll usually say, oh, this probably won't work, but here's an idea. And every time she says this probably won't work, it ends up being a just a fantastic idea. But um, so I do get some ideas from her, but for the, I do not workshop this book. You know, a lot of authors will have a circle of readers. I don't have that circle. I don't do that. Is your wife your first reader? Does she read the manuscript first? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes nobody reads it. Um, My agent wanted to read this one, so she and my wife read it before it went to the publisher. 
But uh, my traditional practice would be nobody reads it. I just have to have faith in what I've done and I send it off. My wife is, you know, uh, a practicing attorney and of course trying to raise three fairly young children. And so, you know, she tries, God help her. She, you know, if I ever ask her for help, she's right there to do it. She always says, if you want me to read it, I will, but I know how hard it is for her. Um, and I usually, if I wanted to read it, I, I will tell her she has 48 hours to read it and who can read something that fast. So um, I'm usually on my own. Yeah. But, but that is, that is unique. A lot of authors are not like that. And you've done quite a lot of work with um, James Patterson, haven't you? Um, written quite a few um, books yeah. with him as co-author. Um, yes. But this is your first since um, for a while, isn't it? When was the last time you did a solo a solo book? No, you're right. It's been about seven or eight years since I came out with one of my books. I, I became a judge in 2014. And by that point, I was already writing with Jim Patterson. And you know, I, I had even younger kids at that point. Uh, they were all three born, but they were all very young. And so I was very busy and I had put together a manuscript for my publisher and had a bit of creative difference with them. And uh, I'm not trying to be mean to my publisher. It, it was an honest creative difference, but I felt like I didn't agree with what they wanted me to do and I didn't want to do it. And I kind of walked away from writing my solo books for a while. You know, writing with Jim is very easy in the sense that he's really my only contact. I don't have an editor. I, I really just have to write with him. I'll send him pages and he'll tell me what he thinks. And he'll give me some great insight. I learn from him. Every time I talk to Jim, I learn from him. And, you know, it, everything was going fine and I was so busy. It's not that I made a conscious decision to stop writing my own books. It's that I kind of just didn't have room for it at that time. And so it just sort of fell by the wayside. There were no hard feelings. There was no angry exchange of words. It just sort of happened. And every year my publisher would kind of tap my agent on the shoulder and say, is he back? And, and I said, not yet, but I'm getting there. And the pandemic really created the opportunity. I'm so, you know, the, the pandemic was awful. I lost somebody close to me. Most people I know did lose somebody close to them. It was awful in every way. But one, and the one way it was not awful, is it gave me time to bring back my solo writing. You said that the um, that your was it creative differences. What what was the reason that were they, you said they were trying to get you to do something that you didn't really want to do? Well, they wanted me to write a different character than I had written before, and I agreed to do it. And then after I did it, they asked me to introduce a female character as a kind of a co lead, and you know. Making a change like that is really rewriting the book. You don't take everything out, but it, it's a completely different vibe. So it took me about another year to do it with with uh, that female lead. And then, um, and then they said they didn't really think that worked. And I said, you know, I've now spent two full years writing a book that it sounds like you are not interested in. And, I, I don't, and I'm not particularly interested in spending a third year writing it yet another way. Um, I just don't really have time right now to be doing that. And it just sort of at that, and like I said, everybody was civil and I, I respected their opinion. I just wasn't sure that I was in a position right then to produce what they wanted. And I said, I need to think about it. And they said, you know, if you want to just go write a, a, another series or if you want to write a, a brand new solo, we'll, we, 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 we want to keep you. We want to hear what you have to say again. But if yeah, I said, I need time, and they said, okay, well, then take the time. And like I said, they were very polite. They checked in every year, and uh, 
somewhere around 2019 or certainly in 2020 during the pandemic, they said, you know, do we, how are we feeling? And I said, I'm ready to do something. And they said, great. And then they just waited for it to come. So, uh, and, and, you know, the same editor that I had had some creative differences with was still my editor. And she absolutely loved Look Closer. And she said, this is great. Let's do it. And she's a great editor. She's since left the company, but she was wonderful and had some great ideas for improvements. Um, and so now I'm back and now I'm very excited to keep doing these solo books because I love this genre. Okay, well, that seems like a good place to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Get civil and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. All rise with Civil. A website from Civil fills your new client pipeline. Prospects find you through powerful SEO, and smart intake forms make it easy to integrate with Clio, Smokeball, Lawmatics, and MyCase. Never lose another lead. Get your Civil bundle. Website, SEO, content marketing, and Google Business Profile Management, free for 60 days from the legal industry's best end-to-end lead generation platform. Book your demo at getcivil.com. That's getciville.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. I'm here with novelist David Ellis talking about his new book, Look Closer. So I should ask you a little bit about um, your relationship with James Patterson. Um, How did that begin and and what's the collaboration like? How does it kind of break down? Well, it began when I wrote my first book, Line of Vision, because back then, of course, I'm unknown. And what you do when you're an unknown author, you do it when you're a known author also, is you try to get blurbs or favorable quotes from established authors. And so among them was James Patterson, who even back in that time, just around the turn of the century, was already a huge author. And he, um, by all accounts, really, really loved the book. In fact, I know he did because he still tells me that. Um, And he provided a nice blurb. And, you know, back then I was touring the bookstores in Manhattan. There's a lot of mystery bookstores in Manhattan back then. And every one of them said, oh, yeah, Jim Patterson was just here telling us how great your book is. And so uh, that was, of course, very gracious of him and uh, and very heady for me that somebody that big would have even known my name. Uh, Fast forward to probably the year uh, 2008. And uh, at that time, my agent, my literary agent, was someone who used to run Warner Books, which was the umbrella company that published 
Jim Patterson. So uh, he was now my agent, but he still had lunch a few times a year with with Jim Patterson, and they got to talking. And this was when Patterson was starting to develop co-authors, and they, you know, he was telling him who his clients were, and Patterson said, I know who Dave Ellis is. He wrote Line of Vision. And so they said, well, maybe this would work. And so I didn't know what to expect, and I was flattered, but I didn't know if I would be able to do what, what Jim needed me to do. So I, you know, my agent said, give him a call. So I called Jim and I said, Jim, um, I'm flattered that you would think of me as a co-author, but I don't, here's my problem. I don't think I know how to write a James Patterson book. And what he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, I don't want you to write a James Patterson book. I want you to write a James Patterson, David Ellis book. I want you to bring your special skill set and I'll bring mine. And hopefully what we do will be something special and fresh. And I have different co-authors who have different skill sets and I want different things from different ones. And I thought, you know, how can you argue with that? You know, he said, I want you to flap your wings. I want you to do what you do, you know, within the context of a James Patterson book. And so we, you know, the rest is history. I think we've written nine together. I I probably finished a 10th already. I'm working on the next one. And, uh, you know, working with him is fantastic. You know, the, the, the process begins with Jim coming up with this idea for a book and he outlines every chapter. So you know he writes short chapters, right? Everybody who reads a James Patterson novel knows the chapters are going to be, you know, three or four pages at most. Um, So each one of those is a scene to Jim. That's what he calls them. He doesn't like to use the word chapter. He says scenes. And he says, he, he outlines, you know, 190 scenes for a book in an outline, shows it to me, we talk about it, and then I start writing. And I'll write about five chapters at a time and send it to him. And he will let me know what he thinks, just like a, a movie director might tell an actor after a scene what they think. The, the director might say, it's great, let's go with it. Or the director might say, let's do it again, but this time I want a little more of this or a little more of that. And those are the conversations Jim and I will have. He'll say something to me like, I, I think we're losing the character's voice here. He'll say, this is a little plotting and slow. Can we tighten this pace up? You know, and, and, and those it, it, the things he says... I sometimes have to think about them after he after I get off the phone, but he, he they're little you know bits of genius that come from him. He's just got a real eye for exactly what his reader wants, and when he doesn't see those on the, see that on the pages he gets, he asks for changes until it, it it works. And so sometimes I'll rewrite scenes two or three times. So is he almost like a showrunner? Almost like in the showrunner role on a TV show, kind of overseeing everything or does he kind of get in to and write a lot too um, when you're doing the collaborations? He always reserves the right to uh, to come in and write the words himself and um, I don't think that's really happened much with us because I can usually get to where it needs to be but uh, he certainly will if he needs to and he always says you know he always says that you know I'll take a look at it at the end if I need to tighten this up um, I don't believe he ever did that with my books, but um, I think he does that sometimes. To him, it's not about who wrote what. It's, is it a good idea? Yeah. You know, there were a couple times where I would say to him in the middle of an outline, hey, I've got an idea for something different. And, he, and he'll say, you know, that I don't care whose idea it was if it's cool. So he'll say, give it a shot. If, if it's great, then we'll go with it. If it's not, go back to the outline. So he usually come, comes up like the idea and kind of gives you quite a detailed outline then um, to work from. It's, yes, yeah. he will give a detailed outline of what he wants from every scene. His his view, I think, as I describe it, not his words, is he wants an exclamation point on every scene. He wants every scene to be powerful in some way. Funny, romantic, scary as hell, thrilling, 
heartbreaking. He wants a he wants it to be powerful, and, and that's one of the reasons why he demands that the chapters be short. You know, his rule is twelve hundred words or less. That makes you pack a punch. It keeps you from spending three paragraphs describing the color of the couch in the room because nobody cares that much about the color of the couch. Um, so he will, you know, that's his way of forcing a pace on you. And frankly, I've borrowed that now because I think it really does keep the pace going. I, I look closer. I don't hold myself to 1,200 words, but I'll tell you this, Matt, I keep count of every chapter. I'll say, how long was this chapter? And if it was getting up towards 2,000, I'll say, does this all need to be here? Should I break this up into two chapters? Um, that staccato pace, I think, is what readers want these days. And did you have any reservations about working with another author um, after working solo? Because when you think of novelists, it's normally them sitting alone, isn't it, and writing in their office by themselves. Did you have any reservations about that? Or were you just like, I, I'm all in on this? Yeah, I had reservations. And, and, and one of the things that I was most worried about was that he was going to expect me to write like him because I didn't want to have to write like somebody else. And that's why I always remember his response that, you know, no, write like yourself, you know, do it in the context of the book that I want you to write. And with me looking over your shoulder, but, you know, flap your wings, you know, write it your way. And, you know, um, and if you come up with great ideas, even if it's midway through the book, let's talk about them. If it's going to be better than what we have written down, then let's do it. Um, it's, there's never been a day I've worked with him where I felt like he was my boss and I was his employee. It's always a collaboration built on mutual respect. And I, I respect the heck out of that guy for everything he's been able to do, but also just every time he gives me his insight about a book he read or about pages that I'm giving him, I always learn something. I mean, I was just talking to him the other day and I learned something again. So he's uh, he's he's the master and he always says, we're not here to win Pulitzer Prizes. You know, it's about the story. You, of course you want the writing to be good, but he says, you know, I want these characters to be super interesting. I want this plot to really move and really excite people so they can't put it down. And moving back to look closer, what was it like making that leap back to writing solo again? Did you have to make any kind of adjustments um, since you've been working with, uh, with James Patterson for so long? You know, not really, because like I said, Jim kind of wants me to be myself when I'm writing with him anyways. I think that's how he thinks that our collaborations will be different than his collaborations with other authors. And they really are if you read his other books with other authors. So I was pretty prepared to do it. Um, you know, there, there's something to be said for for having sole control over your book and, 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 and being able to make call all the shots. It really is not all that different than what I've been doing with Jim, but it is somewhat different to be sure. Um, I really felt like he was kind of perched on my shoulder the whole time anyways, because I would often write a chapter and say, what would Jim say about this? You know, would Jim say, all right, Dave, this is good writing, but it's kind of boring. You know, if you just want to write good writing, congratulate yourself for it, fine. But what you should be caring about is, is the reader going to be compelled? And this isn't compelling. So those kind of lessons, that singular focus on the audience, is this what they wanted in this scene? is something that has really made me a, a, a much more effective writer. I feel like in that way, I'm a much better writer than I used to be, thanks to him. 
And then look closer. You, you kind of said that it's not really a legal thriller, but but it does kind of touch upon the law, doesn't it? And the justice system. And also you kind of touch upon the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. Does that kind of stuff, does that kind of just kind of come naturally as you start writing? Or did when you wrote this book, did you kind of have that in your mind? I'm going to write something here about the Fourth Amendment when, when I um, tackle this book. So I wanted Simon to be passionate. And uh, some law professors that I've known are passionate. I am I'm not a law professor, I'm a judge. I'm very passionate about the law. It really stirs me, and I'm very passionate about the Fourth Amendment. And if you ever took the time to read my judicial opinions on the Fourth Amendment, including some dissents that I wrote in cases where my two colleagues had a different view, I don't think it's hard to tell how passionately I feel. Uh, Plot-wise, it actually worked. Um, because there is some, uh, there is a role that uh, cell phone technology and tracking people takes in this book. It's a, it's, it's actually a fairly important plot point in the police investigation, and uh, so of course the Fourth Amendment jumps right in there. But yeah, I wanted, I wanted Simon to be passionate about something that was important to me. That in, in a job that a lot of people might call boring, you know, people might say, "Oh, you're a law professor. Okay, that's kind of boring." I don't think it is, but I knew some of my readers would. I wanted them to see that to him, this really meant a lot. And yeah, of course, there's some commentary on the criminal justice system. That's always going to be in my books because I have a lot to say. Um, I think our system is quite flawed. Uh, It's the best one that we have been able to come up with. I think we're trying our best. I think we can do better. I hope we will get better. You know, people always say about our justice system in America, it's the worst in the world with the exception of every other one. So that's our way of saying, yeah, we know it's got problems, but we haven't seen a better one yet. But, you know, we can always hope. I try to make it a better system in my judicial writing and my judicial opinions. And I like to talk about it in my books. And also Chicago features prominently, doesn't it, in the story as well. I'm in Chicago today, downtown Chicago. I know you live in Chicago or the Chicago area too. How important was it to you to to depict Chicago? Do you kind of look at this book as like a love letter to Chicago in some ways? as well. I, I do in some ways, and I, I really love writing about Chicago. And I used to write about a fictional area, a fictional city. And, and I did that more so if I had to take liberties with court rules and things like that, that nobody would say, oh, that's not how it works in Illinois. I could always say, well, who said it was Illinois? But I realized, and then that's fine. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. I did create a fictional town here, um, a kind of a sleepy, uh, affluent Western suburb of Chicago, um, which is not terribly different than the one I live in, but it's not exactly the same. Um, because I thought it was good to have a, 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 a high-profile murder take place in a small town with a small town police force that you would probably underestimate. And maybe after reading this book, you won't underestimate these police officers because I have a very intelligent uh, police officer, Jane Burke, in this book, um, who I, a character I really enjoyed because she was underestimated because she was a woman. She was underestimated because she's in a tiny little town, a town that had never had a murder before, um, when in fact she's probably the smartest investigator there is in the book. Um, so that was fun for me. And, and talking about Chicago is always enjoyable. I, I love giving life to the city, and I think it gives so much life to the story I'm telling. And what's next? So um, I, I'm not writing a sequel to uh, Look Closer. Uh, not yet. That may happen. I'm writing a different book. It's also about what I guess you would call an attorney who um, is a pathological liar. 
and uh, he gets caught up in an FBI sting operation. And uh, the results are kind of interesting. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a story that's a little different from your traditional domestic suspense with like a husband and wife and, you know, maybe a lover, those kind of books. Um, but it's really no different in the sense that it's all, uh, it's, you know, there's not, you know, crashing helicopters. There's not a lot of blood or guts, either in Look Closer or in my next book. It's, it's really, um, it's all about the psychology of, of the different characters and how they, you know, manipulate each other and how we learn about them as the, as the book goes on. It's, it's a, it's a much shorter book and it's quite fast paced. And, um, you know, I think I learned a lot from writing Look Closer and, uh, I've kind of got that muscle built up now. And I think I'm going to stay in that kind of genre where you, you keep shifting the ground on people and you, you, you keep them twisting and you hope that number one, you surprise them. And number two, they enjoyed the ride getting there. Cause you really have to have both for a successful book. And how many books have you written? How many novels? So I've written 10 of my own and I'm working on my 11th solo. And I think I've written um, about 10 with Patterson. So I'm up around 20 now. Wow, that's prolific. And so do, do you like have a goal? Like, Do you bang them out like each year or, or is it less kind of stringent than that? Jim Patterson has always been great with me. He knows I have a day job, um, and he's also always pushed me to write my own books. He always says, get back on that horse and write your own books because you're good and, and your books need to be read. And so he, um, he's been absolutely great with giving me time. But generally speaking, the idea is that I'll do a book with him in a year, maybe a little more than a year, and my publisher would like me to produce a book a year. So that's going to be tough with two books and being a judge and being a, a husband and father. Um, I've been able to make it work. Um, I was a little late getting my next book into my publisher, but they're very nice. I find that I don't write as fast as I used to, Matt. Um, I mean, to, to literally answer your question, it's a book a year for, for, bo for both of the people I'm writing for, my publisher and Jim. Um, in reality, it's I, I find you might think I'm a faster writer or I would be having done it for so long. The truth is I'm slower. The truth is, is I've become more demanding of my first drafts. And until I feel like I have something to say, well, I don't want to say it. I think I need to get over that, to be honest with you. I think I need to remember that a first draft is just a first draft. You know, write it. And that's what I tell people. You know, when people want advice from me, I always say, they say, you know, I can't get the words out. I said, spit them out. Just no one's going to read it but you. Who cares? If it's terrible, rewrite it. But just write from the heart, knowing no one else is going to read it, no embarrassment. It's, it's all, most of the obstacles to writing is between your ears. You know, it's just your head telling you, oh, this isn't going to be good. I'm going to be embarrassed. Someone's going to read it and not like it. Well, when you're writing your first draft, none of those things are true yet because no one else is going to see it. And so get it out the first time as honestly and purely as you can and then fix it later. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today about Look Closer. And um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing what you do next. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Okay, Matt. Thank you for the time. It was great. For anyone looking for a breezy summer read, I definitely recommend David's book. I'm Matt Reynolds for the ABA Journal, filling in for your usual host, Lee Rawls. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed it, please rate us on your favorite podcasting app.